Well, well, well. We come to a wonderful, wonderful text of Scripture today uh, in Hosea. And uh, Hosea is a very, very dear book to me. Um, some years past, I actually preached about nine chapters of Hosea. So um, I forgot how long it actually took me to preach that long, at least a year. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful uh, chapter, but I, I hope that it will serve our purposes here today. Let's pray to the Lord and just ask Him to really bless our time together now in His Word. Let's go, to, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we simply come before You now and we ask, Lord, that You would visit us now with Your gracious Spirit, Lord, that You would impart to us um, Your Word in the form of a healing balm that it would soothe our soul and that it would, it would heal our spirits and that it would encourage us in our walk and that it would inform our lives and how we live for your glory. Lord, we pray, God, that you would simply show us, Lord, the depth of your love as we look at this great and mighty, awesome book of Hosea and what your word has to declare for us here. We ask these things in the glorious name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Man, well, as we've been going through a series on personal revival, uh, today's topic is what we can call being revived by love, being revived by love. And just to let you know, um, I have one more sermon on this series of messages, and, uh, <clears throat> and then um, I will be going off to vacation um, uh, thank God for that. Praise the Lord. I'm looking forward to that. Somewhat, I'll be honest with you, I don't like leaving church. Um, even for vacation, I, I, I really don't. Uh, I used to have a very negative view of vacation. I didn't like it. I'd make it as short as possible. And God quickly humbled me and <laughs> showing me, you actually need this. So, um, so I take it and I receive it. Uh, but as uh, a preacher once said, you can take a, a vacation from ministry, but you can't take a vacation from Jesus. So my, my Bible and at least one more book will be coming with me. Uh, but I will be uh, back, Lord willing, and the next time uh, that we gather after next week and after my vacation period is going to be in April, actually. Um, we will be back um, sometime early April, and then we will resume our exposition through the book of Hebrews. So excited to get back to Hebrews um, I hope that you're looking forward to that. I certainly am. But we have some unfinished business with this topic uh, today. And Lord willing, next week um, uh, I am going to be talking about uh, revival in the context of the local church. So talking about really just the practical uh, ways that we can be encouraged and revived by God. And how does God revive His people through His people, through His church. And so look forward to that next week. But this week is really this focus here on love. And as I thought about what it is that encourages us in the Christian life, in fact, what it is that revives us in our Christianity, and I thought, I have yet to preach a topic on the love of God. And I thought there could be nothing more fundamental than the great Christian ethic of love. And I thought, I haven't looked at this, and so we need to do that for the purpose of really understanding God's love for us, His love, His redemptive love, and how that works, and how His love is expressed to us in Christ, and what that looks like, and, and how that should encourage us. And, you know, I, I think of many different things that pastors want for their church. 
Uh, obviously, uh, a pastor wants his church to be holy. He wants his church to be zealous. He wants his church to be pure, to be faithful. He wants his church to be uh, evangelistic, to be doctrinal, all of these things. But honestly, there could be nothing more important than a church that understands that how important the love of God is, a church that, I guess we can say, a church that has been gripped by the love of God. There's nothing more empowering than to reflect on the immensity of God's love for you and I. And uh, as we think about our sin, our depravity, our darkness, as we think about our own condemnation outside of Christ and then the love that God had in bringing us to Himself, it really is a breathtaking thing to consider divine love. But you know, when we talk about the love of God, what we're looking at here is not just the love of converting us to Christ, but more than just a, a, the conversion process that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that those who believe should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the Calvinist translation of that verse, by the way. But more than that, the Bible calls us to keep ourselves in the love of God. And how often we are not cognizant of that. How often is it that we are not aware of our need to keep ourselves in the love of God? That is a, in other words, that is an imperative. It's an action of the Christian. It is a command. It is something that we need to be proactively and intentionally doing. We need to be pursuing the love of God. And like Jude says in Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, you know he doesn't mean keep yourself saved. What he means, I think, is something like what John meant in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, when John says, Consider, oh, how great the love of the Father has bestowed, the, uh, love of the Father has bestowed on us. In other words, it is a contemplation of holy love. It is a consideration, a, a meditation on the greatness of God's redeeming love for us. That's how we do it. That's how we keep ourselves in the love of God and keep the love of God fresh in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, realize this, that part of orthodox theology does not automatically mean that you will continue to have the love of God fresh in your heart. Do you know how many dead, cold, and stale orthodox churches there are? You can walk into many of them. Sometimes it feels like you're walking into a graveyard, to be honest. People are dead, even though they have truth. And so just because we have doctrine in front of us, and just because we are growing theologically, that does not mean that we have this great Christian virtue flourishing within us. We need to. Uh, the love of God is priceless. Uh, Paul says, you know, in not so many words, but he says in Romans 8, 39, he says, you know, this is the one ethic we cannot go without. And so he says, what can separate us from the love of God? Showing us how great the value of it is. How precious it is. In other words, the love of God is something that we ought to treasure. The love of God is, 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 is invaluable to the believer. And that is what it promises to be for us. But how often do we contemplate the love of God? How often do we reflect on the love that God has shown to us? And to make matters worse, oftentimes, if, I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, 
when we're under trial, temptation, affliction, suffering, sickness, distress, if we're honest with ourselves, we often tend to flee from the love of God, to question the love of God, to doubt the love of God, to undermine the love of God so that it no longer has that potent power that it should have in the life of the believer. So, so this is why we have to consider texts like Hosea, because it brings us back to the love of God. It reminds us of His love. Uh, the book of Hosea is an amazing book. Uh, one of the things that makes it so amazing, well, is the controversial nature of the book itself. Turn to chapter 1 of Hosea uh, before moving on. But, uh, you know, the book itself is controversial in the very opening pages of the book. Uh, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. Wow. So here you have God telling a prophet, Hosea, to take to himself a harlot, to love that harlot, to be faithful to that harlot, to have children of harlotry, so that the prophet, in essence, becomes a living parable of the type of sensation, if you would, that God feels in the spiritual harlotry of His people. <laughs> Incredible. And so that when people looked, one commentator even went so far as to say, when people saw Hosea's family life, they would always, it would be a living testament to the way that God feels about how the people of God treat Him. And she would be unfaithful. After his marriage vows, she would repeatedly commit acts of harlotry against her husband. And it is that spiritual unfaithfulness that is the backdrop of the faithful husbandry of God. That God promises to be to His people a faithful God, a loving God, a God that sets His love upon His people, and regardless of where they've been, He will not forsake them. This is outstanding, breathtaking love. We may have a human expression of it, but when you think of the divine and uh, counterpart uh, the metaphor is multiplied ad infinitum. This is not just a sinful man marrying another sinful person and then adultery coming in the midst of that. This is the, this is the holy God of Israel who deserves perfect, unquestioned, unmitigated faithfulness and loyalty. And instead, what does he get? He gets an unfaithful people that time and again forsake him. And so, with the background of Hosea in our mind, as we understood, as we understand what God is doing here, as he is renewing his covenant love to his people, he, he is affirming his purpose to save them, to be their loving God. And if you really want the theology of the book of Isaiah, how he is going to do that is through his prophetic, redemptive, messianic king, David. Uh, just to show you that quickly, 
because I'm going to make certain messianic connections in the book, but just look at chapter 3 of Hosea to show you this very quickly. This is how ultimately the covenant faithfulness of God is going to be shown to the people of God. It is through their King David. And that's why it says here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 5, it says, "...afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king." And they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. You thought eschatology was just something in the New Testament. No, my dear friends. The last days, that phrase actually begins in the book of Genesis. But um, notice there that there is a reference to the fact that the people of God at at the last days will return to David their king. There's one little problem with that. David's been dead for a really long time. (laughs) So he can't possibly be talking about David, the son of Jesse. He's talking about David, the son of God, that they will return to their messianic king, and that is how God is going to accomplish this redemption of his people and commit to them in a loving way. So what what Hosea is going to give us essentially is this. He's going to give us four angles to look at the love of God. How is the love of God seen in uh, in this chapter so that we can savor it? Number one, the love of God is seen supremely in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Now, Hosea reminds Israel that God had set His love upon them when they were a youth. That's the way the chapter begins. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, there's a literal historical background to that verse. It is obviously referring to the Exodus. It was there that God made His covenant vows to His people. Uh, To see this, turn to Deuteronomy 7 just for a second. Because when God covenanted with Israel, He did so on the basis of His free and sovereign choice, not on the basis of any goodness or righteousness in them. This is a pure sovereign love, we could say. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were uh, more in number than, than any other people. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept an oath that He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh the king. Know therefore that, your Lord, that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant with His loving, with his loving kindness to a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Absolutely astounding. But what we learn here is that the language of love, my dear friends, is the language of covenant. And so in Hosea chapter 11, when God says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. It's literally saying, you know, you know our, I mean, our society's idea of love is so uh, perverted, right? 
Uh, our society's uh, understanding of love is the superficial love. It is a perverted type of love. It is a sensual, pornographic kind of love or lust. Or it is a, or it is a cheap, frivolous sort of love of simple convenience. People stay together just because they want to have a certain standard of life. There's actually no love in certain many people's marriages. They just sort of coexist. I mean, ample, ample example after example after example in culture to show us how superficial and shallow and therefore how fraudulent the love of the world is. But the love of God is the total antithesis of that. The love of the God, the love of God, because it is covenantal, it is the deepest form of love imaginable. It is a love rooted in a bond that cannot be severed. And therefore, Hosea says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. Now, now, now notice here in Deuteronomy, if, you, if you're still there, God uses two words here. One is ahaba, to love, and that's in verse 8. The other one is hesed, which is mentioned, or that's in verse 7. And hesed is mentioned in verse 8. So verse 7, the Lord did not set his ahaba, which is just really the general way of saying that you love someone. No, no, not, no, not necessarily a theological important term. It's a real general or generic kind of term. But then he says in verse 8, because the Lord, and then he switches the word from ahaba to hesed. And hesed is a covenantal term. That is, that is a special uh, uh, word for love that is often reserved for covenant contexts. And that, I believe, is the idea in, in Hosea chapter 11. Even though he doesn't use the word hesed, but because he's going back to his covenant relationship in Deuteronomy with Israel, that is certainly what is meant there. That is how it's going to happen. What the covenant idea tells us is that above all, that man's relationship with God is based on communion. That God desires to have holy fellowship with us. He wants to have an intimate relationship with us. It is a communion bond of love. That's what it is. Our God is a lover. First John says, God is love. That's an amazing statement. God is love, right? It is that God, in His very essence, in His ontological makeup, is a loving God. That's what it's saying. And He displays this love to us through His Son. Therefore, what the Bible does is it takes Hosea chapter 11, and it then it, 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 it shows us how does the covenant love of God come to the people of God? Well, it comes to us through a messianic connection, a Christological connection. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, connects us to this very text. Because there it says, Joseph got up, he took the child and the mother while it was still night, and they left for Egypt. So this is where baby Jesus goes to Egypt to flee persecution. And it says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord. That's very important for your doctrine of inspiration. 
Through the prophet, watch this, out of Egypt I called my son. Where is the covenant love of God expressed? It is, well, historically, it is in God calling Israel out of Egypt to make a people out of them. And of course, when Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son, what he's saying is that the proof of that is in God redeeming his people out of Egypt. But the ultimate fulfillment of that happens in calling Christ out of Egypt so that what you have in the ministry of Jesus Christ, if you would, is another exodus. He, he, he because he is the true Israel of God, he, like Israel, is being called out of Egypt. The exodus was just a figure, a type, a shadow to point us forward to the fact that God would call his ultimate son, not the children of Israel corporately, but his son individually, messianically, through Jesus Christ. And so those are the different levels of fulfillment. But because of our, because of our union with Christ, we are recipients of this love. He lavishes, God lavishes his love upon us, or to use the language of Hosea, he loves us, or to use the language of Deuteronomy rather, he set his love on us. Because we were in union with His Son, Jesus. How does this work? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. That's really how Paul is going to string all these thoughts together and bring them to a cumulative climax here to show us how is it that we partake of the divine love of God given to Jesus Christ, shown to Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, the true Israel, how do we partake of that? Well, it happens because of our union with Christ. And that's exactly what Paul says. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, just look at this, because love is everywhere. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. There's love. There's divine love. Divine benediction right there. Divine benevolence right there. He loved us with every... He says He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then the all-important term or phrase is in verse 3 there at the end, in Christ. What does that mean? That means in connection to Christ. In union with Christ. So in other words, what that means is that God thought of you. Let's get real, real personal here. Use plug in your name. He thought of Ozzy. He thought of Mike. He thought of Keith. He thought of Lynn. He thought of Trisha. <laughs> I had to mention my dear wife's name. <laughs> she would tell me at dinner, why didn't you mention my name? <laughs> he loves me too, you know. <laughs> All of us. He thought of us in connection with his son. It's astounding if you think about what Paul is saying here. What's the explanation here? When did this happen? Verse 4. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And then watch this. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. That's how we become recipients of the love of God as the sons of God by virtue of the fact that we're in Christ chosen and predestined to adoption in Christ he says through Jesus Christ to himself 
Watch this now. This was according to the kind intention of His will. Another way you can say that is this was according to God's good pleasure. Wow, that's amazing. This is the thing that made God uh, experience pleasure, joy. This is what God this is what God delighted to do. Isn't this amazing? I mean, think about it. Omnipotent joy manifested and understood in the salvation of a sinful people by virtue of their connection with His Son. Amazing. What is the whole emphasis of this? It is to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. See, God's love is here being set up on the backdrop of Egyptian bondage. This is something that, this is what the book of Isaiah is all about. Is that he delivered not a good people, he delivered not a worthy people, he delivered not a righteous people, not a faithful people. Quite to the contrary, he delivered a very sinful people. It is a love that conquers, therefore. It is a love that redeems. It is a love that delivers, a love that confers itself on God's people in holy love and holy intimate fellowship. This is the work of our mediator. So how does God do this? He does this supremely through Jesus Christ, but how else, therefore, is Hosea using this passage to show us the love of God? Well, look at, look at verse 2, because in verse 2, uh, we, can, we can say this, that the, number 2, the love of God is seen in the overcoming of our rebellion. The more they called them, the more they went from them, and they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. This is really a remarkable thing. Again, going back to the faithfulness of God to an unfaithful people. What is the unfaithfulness of the people? Spiritual harlotry, idolatry. Uh, it got so bad in the book of Hosea that Hosea basically implies that the people had become so compromised they couldn't tell the difference anymore between Baal worship and Yahweh worship. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing because what you have... What you have here is a religious people entrusted with the orthodox truths of the true and living God succumbing to a popular pagan culture all around them. Does that sound familiar to anybody? One commentator said, the allurement of Canaanite worship proved too much for the people to resist. And how much today in our day and age are people who have the orthodox truths of the true and living God that are surrounded by a pagan culture, how much are people succumbing to the spirit of the age to the point where it looks Christian, they talk like Christians, they sing, I love Jesus, but they have embraced the LGBT community so that we cannot, they cannot distinguish anymore the spirit of the age from the spirit of God. And the result is a, 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 a dark, 
blinded church that is no longer able to disentangle itself from its syncretism, its paganism, its compromise. Amazingly, amazingly relevant for our day. No, no, no. God delivers us not just, you know, not, not just because we're ignorant. He delivers us from our idolatry. That's what God does. Turn with me to Romans chapter 5, just to bring this into Pauline theology. Romans chapter 5, because that's what's going on here. The people of Israel are being delivered not just because they were a little bit irreligious. They were just a little bit, you know, they stood off from God a little bit. They weren't really into it, right? No, no, no. It's more than that. It is a blasphemous, sacrilegious perversion of the Levitical cultus. Why do I say that? Because if you look at verse 2, they are sacrificing. They are burning incense. Sound familiar? Those are things that Israel was to do according to the Levitical order. They were supposed to sacrifice unto Yahweh. They were supposed to burn incense as a soothing aroma to the true and living God. Instead, they are using those platforms of worship for paganism. It's breathtaking idolatry. So what happens is that left to our own depravity, we will gladly go from a place of being not only helpless, but hostile to God. You try to talk to someone who has compromised on the issue of homosexuality, and you'll find out just how hostile they really are to the true and living God. It's not just that they become indifferent or they've taken a neutral position. They actually become hostile to the true and living God, to His Word. Romans chapter 5, but, but see, that the reality is this, is that this is true of all of us in our own, left to ourself and left to our own sin. Uh, beginning in verse 6, he says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Jesus died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us. This is how He demonstrates it, folks. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Watch this now. For while we were enemies. Nobody's neutral here. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. The reconciliation means that God needed to bring together two opposing parties, namely God and sinners. These were these two parties were in opposition to one another because man was hostile to God and God was hostile to them, more importantly. Have you ever heard, ever seen people walk around with a t-shirt or, or a tattoo? Only God can judge me. Uh, like Caiaphas, I think they spoke better than they knew. The truth is, is that only God will judge you. <laughs> That's a terrifying thing to be putting on your on your arm or you're wearing it on a t-shirt. It's not that only God can judge you, it's that God will judge you. 
that's a terrifying prospect. So he overcomes our rebellion, our hostility. We were so hostile to God in our own sin, but he overcame. We would gladly, brothers and sisters, left to ourselves, we would gladly keep on sacrificing to Baal in our own life, going right along with the spirit of the age, giving ourselves to all of the sensuality and perversion and deviancy and depravity of our world. Third thing, the love of God is also seen in this, that He also overcomes our spiritual blindness. When the Reformers talked about the doctrine of total depravity, it wasn't just saying man is a sinner. Uh, that, that was part of it, so that in the Reformation, what was really at stake in the doctrine of the depravity of man was not so much saying, this is, the, um, th- this is the doctrine that teaches that man is a sinner. Catholics believe that. But what was at stake at the doctrine of total depravity was that not only is man a sinner, but man is incapable. Man is unable. So total depravity really stood for total inability. And I've had my share of encounters with folks who would want you to believe that they affirm the various points of Reformed theology like Calvinism, and then you get to total depravity and they say, oh yes, of course I believe that man is sinful. But do you believe that man is also incapable? Like Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, do you believe that man is dead? And if you believe that man is dead in his trespasses and sins, do you also therefore agree that man is not able to do anything for himself? After all, my dear friends, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. What can a dead man do? (laughs) Nothing. Right? And so God along this line also, he also... He also corrects our blindness. He gives us sight. Look at verse 3. Yet it was I, it was I, even though Israel was idolatrous, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim is just a summary of the, one of the, um, uh, of the tribes of Israel. It's representative of Israel. And it says, I took, them by, 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 I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. In other words, they were spiritually blind to where does true life come from? And you, you can see the blindness of Israel if you go back to, if you go back to, um, you go back to uh, chapter 2 of Hosea. Hosea chapter 2, beginning of verse 8, because this this broke down to the level of their groceries. The groceries indicted them. Why? Well, look at what Hosea says, Hosea 2.8. For she does not know that it was I, talking about Israel, who gave her the, the grain, the new wine, the oil, lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool, my flax given to cover her nakedness, and I will uncover her lewdness. In other words, I will expose her for her spiritual harlotry. How? By bringing in a desolation 
on the nation. He's going to shut up the sky. Oh, it says that in the covenant. When they, when they came into the covenant, God made certain threats, certain warnings. After he made certain promises, he made a covenant. He says, look, if you do this, if you obey here, if you obey here, guess what? Just read Deuteronomy 28. You will be blessed here. I'll bless you with this. I'll bless you with that. I'll bless you with this. Innumerable blessings. And you say, wow, God is so good. Then he says, if you break the covenant, I will curse you in the field. I will curse you in the streets. I will curse you at home. I will curse you with your seed. I will curse you in your security, your national security. I will curse your borders, etc., etc., etc. And he says he's going to make he's going to make the sky like iron. No rain means your crops are going to dry up and die. It will be a total wasteland. There will be jackals in the street. It will, be, it will be just a dustpin, a wasteland, a total desolation. And that's what Israel ultimately, ultimately became when they, went, when they went off to Babylon. It's amazing, amazing. And so God overcomes not only our rebellion, but he, 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 he overcomes our spiritual deadness, our blindness. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And what is the motive? What motivates God to overcome our blindness? We were helpless. Oh, just think of where you were before God shined light into your heart. Just think about it. You were a whistler in the dark. You didn't know you were dabbling on the edge of eternity, of an eternity, a Christless eternity in hell. And you were just whistling Dixie as you just straddled the razor's edge of life and death, heaven and hell. And therefore, God was truly merciful, brothers and sisters. If you are in Christ today, God, you are the recipient, truly the recipient of the love of God. But, but overcoming our blindness is also part of God's love. Look at this, right? Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, which means you went right along with the rest of them, glibly and gladly. And he says, according to the prince of the power of the air, which means you willfully, even ignorantly, however, however ignorantly, you did so willfully go along with the spirit of Antichrist that had total sway and influence over you. As Paul says in Timothy, he held you captive to do his will. You were his puppet and his pawn, and he moved you and manipulated you however he wanted. This is terrifying. And he says, and it is the prince of the power of the air. The air there just speaks of the cultural atmosphere. Oh, the cultural atmosphere in our, in our own day and age is so strong, so powerful, so influential. And now everybody's got, you know, uh, uh, the whole culture in the palm of their hands, right? We're looking into our little crystal balls, you know, our little six-inch, you know, oracles that we hold in the palm of our hands that tells us everything about everything. I read a magazine that said, I think it was Time Magazine, front cover, is Google God? In other words, everybody goes to Google, you rely on Google, you look to Google, you depend on Google, Google gives you your answers, you do your business in Google, you know, don't want to, I, mean, I guess we can pick on Apple too, but what I'm saying is technology has made it so easy for us, if we're not careful, if we're not watchful to just assimilate 
into the spirit of the age. Okay, powerful, you know, the technology is a powerful tool for good or evil. He says of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He says, among whom we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. In other other words, powerful forces were at work in our spiritual blindness. Powerful forces that were just, you know, at work in us. This epithumia is the word that means strong desire. And that's what he's saying here. He says, we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, and that's the biggest, the biggest uh, uh, adverse statement or adversative in the Bible, but God, he says, being rich in mercy, watch this, because of his great love with which he loved us. You see how great the love of God is? He overcame our otherwise comfortable spiritual darkness. We would just gladly and glibly go along the path of destruction. We're comfortable in it. Why? Because we're dead. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Him. By grace you are saved. What is... uh, What is Hosea saying? Hosea is saying, by grace we are saved because if it wasn't for the grace of God, you would be sacrificing to the Baals. You would be offering your incense to the idols. Guess what? You don't even know that it was God who taught you. You don't even know that it was God who healed you. But it goes deeper than that. Much, much deeper than that. On top of that, God doesn't just say, look, we are, we are recovered from our spiritual blindness because he says we are given sight. Jesus said this, Matthew 13, a great commentary on all of this. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that we are blessed with hearing, we are blessed with seeing. He says, therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Remind you of anybody that you're witnessing to? You're telling them. You're showing them. You're praying for them. You're talking to them. You're witnessing to them. They see. They hear. But they don't see. They don't understand. They can't hear. They're blind. They're deaf. They're dead. And so we are totally dependent on sovereign grace to move. It says... In their case, it is the prophecy of Isaiah being fulfilled, which says, you'll keep on hearing, but you won't understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Boy, that describes so many Christian kids. Right? So many little homeschooled Christian little boys and little girls. They're so exposed to Christianity. They live in a virtual world of Christian things. But yet, they have become dull. Unresponsive. Doesn't affect them anymore. Whatever little initial fear they had when you shared to them some of the stories of the Bible and some of the truths about eternity, they become dull. Their conscience becomes hard. 
even though with their ears they scarcely hear. With, uh, he says, they have closed their eyes. See, see, see what happens there? It goes from a state of ignorance to a state of willful ignorance. It's not just that they're blinded. They actually shut their eyes so that no more information can even come in. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes. They would hear with their ears and understand that with their heart and return and I would heal them. But, but this is where... This is where the love of God comes in for each one of you. How do we feel the love of God here? In this verse that Jesus says. Matthew 13, 16. But blessed are your eyes. Because you see. And blessed are your ears. Because you hear. Isn't that amazing? My paraphrase. That's what he's saying. They see, they hear, they understood the kingdom of God was at hand, and that because of the grace of God. So, we go from not only the things that God overcomes in us, but then what He showers us with. So, the, the, the fourth thing is this. The love of God is also seen in this, that we are overwhel- He overwhelms us with His intimacy and His love. Look at, uh, look at the verse, how it leads on. He says in verse 4, I led them with cords of a man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. Amazing metaphors that Hosea is using here to show us different angles of the love of God and what we should detect in all of these anthropomorphisms, all of these human ways of describing how God operates in our lives. Number one, he uses sort of a, what we could, use a, what we could say is a parental metaphor when he speaks about the, the, the fact that he led them with the cords of a man. There's some debate on this, but the consensus in the, in the commentaries is that what this is talking about is sort of a parental love, like a, like a mother that puts a rope on her child so that she does, he does, the child doesn't stray out of her sight. In the same way, God put a safety net for His people. In other words, He guarded His people, and that is what God does for us. He watches over us. He provides us with safety. He provides us with uh, wisdom. Uh, these... Um, this cord of a man, the same word is used in, uh, the same analogy is used in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, that God is going to correct his son. So they're just amazing, but Samuel, uh, the parallel, just connects us to the Messiah, just like God took care of his son, God will take care of us, his sons and daughters. The second metaphor is this. The second metaphor is to the cords, he says, he says the cord, he says, or excuse me, the bonds, I always get those mixed up, cords, bonds, essentially the same thing. But he says, he says that he led them with bonds of love. And what are the bonds? Well, that, that word is used of the rope that was used to restrain the arms of Samson. In other words, it is the word that speaks of the bonds of restriction. But this restricting, and some would say that the bonds he's referring to is the law. That God, in prescribing His law to Israel, was doing it just like a, like a bond, like a rope, like a constraint of love. And they turned His covenant law into a burden. Does that sound familiar to us? 
We can resonate with this even in the New Covenant. John says in 1 John 5.2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we observe His commandments. It's that simple. And then he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and, watch this, His commandments are not burdensome because they're bonds of love. Because they are cords of love. That's why they're not a burden. And as a matter of fact, look at what it says here in the next metaphor. He says, I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. You know what that's literally talking about there? That's, talking, that's a metaphor of a farmer. And what he's saying is, <clears throat> God is like a skilled farmer that was able to not take the yoke off. That's not what the Hebrew suggests. The Hebrew actually suggests that he slides the yoke, making it easier for the oxen or whatever to eat. So in other words, what he's saying is that he alleviates all uh, burden. In other words, this, this yoke, this bond, these ropes, these constraints are born out of a gracious gentleness, born out of God's desire to spiritually nourish us. And that's why he says, in the end, he says, I led them, and then he says, I fed them. He says, I became to them as one who lives, lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them. Now that is imagery, as many have pointed out, that goes back to how faithful God was to Israel in the wilderness when they were destitute of food. You see, it is the practical way that we can see the love of God. He provides for our necessities. He provides for our needs. He provides for everything that we need for life and godliness. And how does He do that? Well, in two ways. He does that through His providence. He gives us food. He gives us clothing. He tells the disciples, don't worry about your food, your drink, your, clout, your, your, your clothes. Don't, don't, don't worry about where you're going to live. Don't worry about the roof over your head. What does he tell them? Seek the kingdom of God first, and then the rent will get paid. Let me take care of that, right? Put your priorities first. Be kingdom-minded first, and then all these other things are going to be added to you what is the, there, there is a redemptive historical fulfillment of this idea in Hosea, and ultimately, it is Christological. What is the ultimate bread that came out of heaven? It is the true bread that came out of heaven, which is John chapter 6. And let's turn there very quickly for us, just to, just to show how is it that God ultimately feeds his people. Well, he fed Israel faithfully through the wilderness. But in John 6, the Lord himself makes the connection, the prophetic connection, that what happened there was just a metaphor for what was to come. Beginning in verse, oh, I don't know, we can begin in verse 30. So the people said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, so here they're pointing to a miracle, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness 
as it is written. And now he's quoting Exodus 16. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and that always means pay close attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father, my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. See, that is idiomatic of the way that we should be with our God and for his love. God always give us the bread of heaven. What does that mean? We ought to, in order to experience God's benevolent love, His, His marvelous provision for our lives, we are to habitually and constantly be feasting on Jesus Christ. Continually and constantly internalizing the Son of God. How? By faith. Where? In His Word. Through the Spirit. By faith. This is what Jesus meant when he said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourself. It begins by faith as we take him in, as we consume Jesus Christ and all of the benefits that come with him. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my, my blood is true drink. In other words, the ultimate sustenance for man is not even in the good gifts that he gives us, materialistically speaking, provisionally, providentially, your job, your food, your clothes, your family, your home, your church. The greatest provision that God has given us to show us that He loves us, it could not become more, uh, it could not become more significant than the flesh and the blood of Jesus, because the flesh symbolizes that Jesus lived for you on your behalf. The blood symbolizes Jesus died for you. And therefore, what greater expression of love can we have in all the world? than that God fed us with the true bread. He fed us with true food in His Son, Jesus Christ. God's faithfulness is all around us, brothers and sisters. Our deal is, is that we don't have eyes to see all the time. And so I pray that if you're discouraged, if you're downcast, and if you're downright depressed, the way out of depression is not medicine all the time. For some people, it may be that. But a superior way, I believe, is to fix your gaze on the love of God, to look on His, on His grace and His sovereign love for your life, to see what mercy, what grace, how much did God overcome in me and provide for me in His Son, Jesus. That should and ought to encourage us more than any other coping mechanism that we can think about for His glory. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we know too little and we oftentimes do not savor enough Your love. We often do not turn our gaze upon the love of God, and we don't do what John says when he says, consider how great the love of God has been shown to us.
And so, Lord, we pray, help us again to be reminded daily to sit around the table tonight to look at each other and reflect on the love of God and say, how do you mostly meditate on the love of God? What is it about the redeeming work of Jesus that makes you really, really understand the love of God, see the love of God, comprehend the depth of the love of God? These are the questions that we should be asking ourselves and encouraging ourselves with so that we can be built up and revived in the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.